In colonial times, labor was in great demand in America. During the 18th and early 19th centuries, potential immigrant laborers were recruited in Great Britain and Germany and other European countries. But many who were willing to go could not afford the cost of travel. It was not uncommon for these to travel under an indenture or contract, promising to work after their arrival for a certain period of time without wages as payment for their passage. Others came with the promise that family members already in America would pay their fare upon arrival. But if that didn't happen, the newcomers were obliged to pay their own costs through indentured service. The term used to describe these indentured immigrants was redemptioners. They had to redeem the cost of their passage, in a sense, purchase their freedom by their labor. Among the most significant of Jesus Christ's descriptive titles is Redeemer. As indicated in my brief account of immigrant redemptioners, the word redeem means to pay off an obligation or a debt. Redeem can also mean to rescue or set free, as by paying a ransom. If someone commits a mistake and then corrects it or makes amends, we say he has redeemed himself. Each of these meanings suggests different facets of the great redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ through His Atonement, which includes, in the words of the dictionary, to deliver from sin and its penalties as by a sacrifice made for the sinner. The Savior's redemption has two parts. First, it atones for Adam's transgression and the consequent fall of man by overcoming what could be called the direct effects of the fall—physical death and spiritual death. Physical death is well understood. Spiritual death is the separation of man from God. In the words of Paul, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This redemption from physical and spiritual death is both universal and without condition. The second aspect of the Savior's Atonement is redemption from what might be termed the indirect consequences of the fall—our own sins, as opposed to Adam's transgression. By virtue of the fall, we are born into a mortal world where sin—that is, disobedience to divinely instituted law—is pervasive. Speaking of all of us, the Lord says, even so, when they grow up, Sin conceiveth in their hearts, and they taste the bitter, that they may know to prize the good. And it is given unto them to know good from evil, wherefore they are agents unto themselves. Because we are accountable and we make the choices, the redemption from our own sins is conditional—conditioned on confessing and abandoning sin and turning to a godly life, or, in other words, conditioned on repentance. Wherefore, commands the Lord, teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in His presence. The Savior's suffering in Gethsemane and His agony on the cross redeem us from sin by satisfying the demands that justice has upon us. He extends mercy and pardons those who repent. The Atonement also satisfies the debt justice owes to us. 
by healing and compensating us for any suffering we innocently endure. For behold, he suffered the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who belong to the family of Adam. Inasmuch as we follow Christ, we seek to participate in and further His redemptive work. The greatest service we can provide to others in this life, beginning with those of our own family, is to bring them to Christ through faith and repentance so they may experience His redemption, peace and joy now, and immortality and eternal life in the world to come. The work of our missionaries is a magnificent expression of the Lord's redeeming love. As His authorized messengers, they offer the incomparable blessings of faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, opening the way to spiritual rebirth and redemption. We can also assist in the Lord's redemption of those beyond the grave. The faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart the mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. With the benefit of vicarious rites, we offer them in the temples of God, even those who died in bondage to sin. They can be freed. While the most important aspects of redemption have to do with repentance and forgiveness, there is a very significant temporal aspect as well. Jesus is said to have gone about doing good, which included healing the sick and infirm, supplying food to hungry multitudes, and teaching a more excellent way. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. So may we, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, go about doing good in the redemptive pattern of the Master. This kind of redemptive work means helping people with their problems. It means befriending the poor and the weak, alleviating suffering, righting wrongs, defending truth, strengthening the rising generation, and achieving security and happiness at home. Much of our redemptive work on earth is to help others grow and achieve their just hopes and aspirations. An example from Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables, though fictional, has always touched and inspired me. Near the beginning of the story, Bishop Bienvenu gives food and overnight shelter to the homeless Jean Valjean, who has just been released from 19 years in prison for having stolen a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving children. Hardened and embittered, Valjean rewards Bishop Bienvenu's kindness by stealing his silver goods. Later detained by suspicious gendarmes, Valjean falsely claims the silver was a gift to him. When the gendarmes drag him back to the bishop's house, to Valjean's great surprise, Bishop Bienvenu confirms his story and for good effect says, But I gave you the candlesticks also, which are silver like the rest, and would bring two hundred francs. Why did you not take them along with your plates? The bishop approached him and in a low voice said, Forget not, never forget, 
that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of this promise, stood confounded. The bishop continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Jean Valjean indeed became a new man, an honest man, and a benefactor to many. Throughout his life, he kept the two silver candlesticks, reminding him that his soul had been redeemed for God. <clears throat> Some forms of temporal redemption come by collaborative effort. It's one of the reasons the Savior created a Church. Being organized in quorums and auxiliaries and in stakes, wards, and branches, we can not only teach and encourage each other in the gospel, we can also bring to bear people and resources to deal with the exigencies of life. People acting alone or in ad hoc groups cannot always provide means on a scale needed to address larger challenges. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are a community of saints organized to help redeem the needs of our fellow saints and as many others as we can reach across the globe. Because of our humanitarian efforts mentioned by Elder Oaks, specifically this past year, 890,000 people in 36 countries have clean water. 70,000 people in 57 countries have wheelchairs. 75,000 people in 25 countries have improved vision and people in 52 countries received aid following natural disasters. Acting with others, the Church has helped immunize some 8 million children and has helped Syrians in refugee camps in Turkey, in Lebanon, and Jordan with the necessities of life. At the same time, members of the Church in need received millions of dollars in fast offering and other welfare assistance during 2012. Thank you for your generosity. All of this does not begin to count the individual acts of kindness and support, gifts of food, clothing, money, care, and a thousand other forms of comfort and compassion by which we may participate in the Christ-like work of redemption. As a boy, I witnessed my own mother's actions to redeem a woman in need. Many years ago, when her sons were young, my mother underwent a serious operation that nearly took her life and left her bedridden much of the time for nearly a year. During this time, family and ward members helped mother and our family. For additional help, the Ward Relief Society president, Sister Abraham, recommended that my parents hire a woman in the ward who desperately needed work. In recounting this story, I'll use the fictional names Sarah and Annie for this woman and her daughter. This is my mother's account. I can see it as plain as if it were only yesterday. There I lay in bed, and Sister Abraham brought Sarah to the bedroom door. My heart sank. There stood the least attractive person I had ever met, so thin, scraggly, unkempt hair, round shoulder, head bowed looking at the floor. She wore an old house dress, four sizes too big. She wouldn't look up and spoke so softly I couldn't hear her. 
Hiding behind her was a little girl about three years old. What in the world was I to do with this creature? After they left the room, I cried and cried. I needed help, not more problems. Sister Abraham stayed a while with her, and they soon whipped the house into shape and prepared some good meals. And Sister Abraham asked me to try it for a few days, that this girl had had a really hard time and needed help. The next morning when Sarah came, I finally got her to come over by the bed where I could hear her. She asked what I wanted her to do. I told her and then said, but the most important thing is my boys. Spend time with them. Read to them. They are more important than the house. She was a good cook, and she kept the house clean, the washing done, and she was good to the boys. Through the weeks, I learned Sarah's story. Because she was hard of hearing, she didn't do well in school and eventually dropped out. She married young to a dissolute man. Annie was born and became the joy of Sarah's life. One winter night, her husband came home drunk, forced Sarah and Annie into the car in their bedclothes, and then dropped them off by the side of the highway. They never saw him again. Barefoot and freezing, Sarah and Annie walked several miles to her mother's home. Her mother agreed to let them stay in exchange for doing all the housework and cooking and caring for her sister and brother who were in high school. We took Sarah to an ear doctor, and she got a hearing aid. We got her to take adult schooling, and she got her high school diploma. She went to night school and later graduated from college and taught special education. She bought a little home. Annie was married in the temple and had two children. Sarah eventually had some operations on her ears and was finally able to hear well. Years later, she retired and served a mission. Sarah thanked us often and said she learned so much from me, especially when I told her that my sons were more important than the house. She said it taught her to be that way with Annie. Sarah is a very special woman. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we ought to do all we can to redeem others from suffering and burdens. Even so, our greatest redemptive service will be to lead them to Christ. Without His redemption from death and from sin, we have only a gospel of social justice. That may provide some help and reconciliation in the present, but it has no power to draw down from heaven perfect justice and infinite mercy. Ultimate redemption is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. I humbly and gratefully acknowledge Him as the Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. arrested for two burglaries I had committed to pay for my addiction to heroin. And I ended up spending five years in the Arizona State Prison System. And I hadn't even been out for a few days, and I had started drinking and smoking pot again. And soon enough, I got into trouble, and they sent me back in. 
And it became important for me to figure out where I was going and what I was doing with my life. I started to believe that God was trying to help me because I had these unmistakable feelings that was like that God was reaching out, but I couldn't understand why. And I finally got down on my knees and it was the first time that I had prayed with any real sincerity in probably 11, 12 years. And I said, God, I believe that you're there. And I believe that you're trying to help me. What I don't understand is why. Why would you want to help me? I'm a convict, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, and I haven't tried to follow you. Why would you want to help me? I got an answer to that prayer. In a feeling I had in here, in words that I actually heard, Mark, it's because I love you. I dated this girl, I was at BYU for five or six months, and the day I asked her to marry me was the day she decided to break up with me. And uh, I had a dentist appointment that week and they did a root canal and the dentist gave me a prescription for pain pills and immediately had a warning bell go off in my head. Before I'd even gone and gotten a refill of it, I had reversed the prescription and I was taking four to six every one to two hours. And not only did I relapse again, ended up living on the streets and uh, getting into the worst addiction I've ever been involved with. I got involved with the robbery. When I went in and I told this guy, I said, hey, I just need your money, I'm not gonna hurt you. I just kept my hand in my pocket and, uh, and I left. Hiding in the bushes down the road, watching the cop cars go by and stuff, I realized what an absolute phony and fraud and hypocrite I was. I saw this fellow's reaction in my mind's eye and that look of fear that was in his eyes. How could I have done that to another human being? I felt like I was about the biggest failure on the earth because God had saved my life once before and I had thrown it away. I figured out how to get the safety off the gun and a bullet into the chamber and all of a sudden the whole world went silent. The, the sirens going by, the, the cars, everything else just totally went silent and I heard these words, I'm still here. And I said, how can you be? After all I've done, after all you've done for me, how can you still be there? But I knew whose voice it was. And I knew that it was real. I finally walked out of those bushes and to the cops that were out on the street. And I walked up to them and I said, I'm the one you're looking for. Ended up spending nine years at the prison system. But you know, nine years was a small price to pay to have a life given back to me again because I came to find a loving God who had been with me every step of the way. And the times that I didn't think he was there was only because I wasn't looking. I was able to get out of prison uh, about 16 years ago now. 
there was um, a woman I met. We're just about ready to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. And our son, whom we named Ammon, was born on Christmas morning seven years ago. The Lord knows what we are facing, that we all sin and come short of the glory of God again and again. He knoweth the weakness of man and how to succor them who are tempted. He teaches us to pray always that we enter not into temptation. We are told to cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. He commands us to repent and to forgive. And although repentance is not easy, as we strive with all our hearts to obey his gospel, he gives this promise. Verily I say unto you, notwithstanding your sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. I will not utterly cast you off, and in the day of wrath, I will remember mercy. The Savior wants to forgive. Back in 2005, I was living the dream. Oh my gosh, I was living in New York City, and a musical that I'd written with my friend The Ark was gonna be off-Broadway. And I thought, this is my destiny. I could just see my future unfolding before me. What I didn't realize is that whatever is written in the stars is not as powerful as what's written in the New York Times. And we got crucified, and it didn't last very long. It broke my heart, I was crushed. And I think I know something about heartache. And then a year goes by, and I find out what heartache's really about. My son comes out and says, Dad, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm gay, and I've tried to do everything you said. Went on my mission. I was an Eagle Scout, and I don't know how to get through it. And the stuff that you have tried to tell me about this has not been helpful. Well, it broke my heart in a real heartbreaking way. And so I thought, well, I need some answers from heaven. So I started praying like I'd never prayed before. How do I help my son get through this? How do I hold my family together? I just begged God to talk to me. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like heaven was shut. It's shut down. I couldn't get past the ceiling. And I thought, well, this is a little challenge. Well, you think that for a week or two or a month or two, but two years and you start asking yourself, wait a minute, what if I got it wrong? Not just church stuff or policy stuff. What if the issue with, is there really a God who hears my prayers? Does he know me? And is there something that I may have done that offended him so he won't talk to me? I mean, this is the stuff that really matters. Will I keep the promises when my heart feels nothing. We make all of our great promises in life. When we're feeling great, when we fall in love, oh, I feel so great, I love you, I love you. When we feel the Spirit, oh, baptize me, I'm gonna live righteously. What do we do when we feel nothing? And we fear that maybe nothing's coming. Well, that's where I was. So I got on my knees and I'd prayed before a lot and I'd had prayers I believed were answered, but it'd been so long. And I said, uh, I don't know if you're hearing this, I'm gonna quit whining and moaning about this. 
I'm going to trust you. <laughs> I'm going to trust that there's a reason that I can't feel your presence. There's a reason that I feel so abandoned. I'm going to trust that you're smarter than I am, that you get this better than I do. And at some point, and I don't feel like it'll ever happen, but at some point, you'll communicate with me and I'll feel your love. And I won't feel so lost. I hadn't given up hope, but I'd given up trying to make myself feel something or to say, what's wrong with me? After nine years of this faith crisis, I had this extraordinary experience. I went into my study, I'm a songwriter, and for 10 days, it was like I got downloads of songs, just kind of almost out of the blue. Because I had been wondering, what's Jesus really like? Did I just borrow my idea of Jesus or did I really have an understanding of what he was like? I realized, that when I reviewed the 10 or 12 songs that had come during those 10 days, that my answer about who Jesus was and how he felt about me and how I was gonna move forward came in songs. And that's when this revelation that kind of changed my life happened. That the love the Lord left me so personally and so individually and so completely that he would send an answer that I would recognize could have only come from him, from his heart to mine. I don't know how else to describe it. I was overwhelmed with grace. And then I thought, why did this take nine years? As I tried to process the story that I've been sharing with you, I started to make some notes. Were there times that Jesus was there and I didn't see him because I had decided in advance, oh, oh, oh I, I know how to get answers to my prayers. And they come in this box. This is how God answers prayers like this. Every prayer he's ever answered for me came this way. Well, what if he was answering me outside the box? What if, what if there were ways he was trying to give me hope and reassure me and talk to me and it, I, and it just went over my head because I couldn't see it. You know, you talk about being humbled. And I listed 25 things that had happened where the Lord was reaching out to me. It was a discovery of the fact that for nine years, the Lord had not been punishing me by not talking to me. He was trying to teach me that even when I couldn't see it, His grace was trying to save me. Coming in, no one would blame 
cried in private If you tried to hide it away So no one knows No one will see If you stop bleeding Cause you're not alone